Our final look this evening at the first 14 verses of Ephesians. Some of you are relieved to hear that. It's actually the fourth go at these 14 verses. And we'll look specifically this evening at verse 3 to catch again the context in verses 11 through 14. Hetty Green is in the Guinness Book of World Records for being America's greatest miser. She died in 1960, left over $100 million in her estate in 1916, and yet she was so miserly it said that she ate cold oatmeal rather than suffer the expense of heating the water. Uh, It's said of her that she hastened her own death by bringing on a fit of apoplexy while arguing the merits of skim milk versus the merits of whole milk because skim is cheaper. It's interesting. Ephesians is written to Christians who might be tempted to treat their spiritual resources like Hetty Green treated her financial resources, never employing them, never making use of them, never enjoying them, either for our own good or for the benefit of others, and and not delighting in them to the glory of God. Because of this, some Christians live a life of spiritual malnourishment, feeding only on spiritual junk food, instead of feasting on the mineral-rich, vitamin-rich, protein-rich, monounsaturated fat and complex carbohydrate-rich, fiber-rich, enzyme-rich. I tried to think of them all. How do you eat healthy? Instead of feeding on that food of the gospel and in failing then to know and enjoy what we're given, we grow malnourished and our hearts grow weak and our affections for the God who gives these blessings to us, fades. But Paul here is a God-intoxicated man. He's overwhelmed and his heart is full and he bursts forth in praise. And verses 3 through 14, as we've said, is 202 words strung together, phrase after phrase, in what we can almost imagine is one long breath of praise to the Lord and instruction to us. Of all the good that we have in Jesus. And so tonight we conclude our study with the final good that we have. Focusing chiefly on our inheritance and the spirit who gets it for us. Let me invite you to hear God's word now. From Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 and then 11 through 14. Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would behold wonderful things in your word, that Jesus would be lifted before our eyes, that we would know and appreciate what you've done for us, and it would stir us to give you all the glory. We pray you would do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul reminds you again and again that you are spiritually rich in Jesus. Already, with every blessing, you have been loved, he says at verse 4, before the foundation of the, the world, you have been in love, adopted into the family of God and made a co-heir with Jesus of all things. You have been lavished With God's grace, he says, you have uh, been redeemed, as we saw last week, by the precious blood of Christ. You've been forgiven and loosed from all your sins. And they're as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed them from you. And you've been given insight into God's plan. You know that he's reuniting all things in Jesus. You know all these things. You have all these things, all these blessings, he says. And now he comes to this blessing You have received inheritance, and you've been given the Spirit to guarantee inheritance. So we want to think about inheritance and what that means and how to live in light of it. And I want to do it under four headings. I want you to consider the the grammar of inheritance. That might be a tough task on a Sunday evening, but let's consider the grammar of inheritance. Let's consider the grace, the guarantee, and the goal of our inheritance in Jesus. Go, go back to verse 11. I, what am I talking about? By the grammar of inheritance. I mean, what do you mean, Ted? That's so strange. Well, there is a difficulty in the passage in being clear about what he means here. Does he mean our inheritance in Jesus or God's inheritance? Are we made an inheritance or have we obtained an inheritance. It's a difficult passage. Many good uh, translators and commentators have disagreed over this. Uh, it's a challenge to be certain about it. So I was reading the ESV, English Standard Version. That's what I use to preach from to you. And you heard me say at verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And at verse 14, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now listen. If you're reading the New International Version, you heard something different. You were reading along and you didn't even know where I was because it begins, in him you were chosen. And at verse 14, the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So so my translation says we're acquiring possession of it. And then the NIV says... um, Basically, that we are God's possession, waiting on him to acquire full possession of us. The New American Standard is different as well. The point being is this. 
It's hard to be certain. Grammatically, it's appropriate to translate it either way. It's a, it's a passive, it can, it can be read either way. Either we've obtained an inheritance or we've been made an inheritance. So grammatically, you could translate it either way. And then biblically, both ideas are true across the Bible, which is wonderfully exciting and also gets me off the hook. Because even if I have Paul wrong in Ephesians 1, we don't have his theology wrong. Okay? Is that clear to you? The the grammar can go either way, and the theology is true either way. He could mean what Peter means in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's saying saying, you've been born again into a living hope and into an inheritance that you await to fully receive. What an inheritance it is. I mean, if you think of the images in Revelation, what do we have in Jesus? Well, he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor sorrow for the former things will have passed away and behold, all things will have become new. In Jesus, our bodies will be raised imperishable from the grave and raised raised, imperishable, full of power and glory and honor and filled with the Holy Spirit. And we will stand forever in the presence of our Lord and enjoy life as co-heirs of the universe, co-ruling with Jesus over all things. And the shepherd, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd and he will guide us to springs of living water. That's what awaits us, whatever all that means. That's amazing. But it is also told to us in the Old Testament and New that God's people are God's inheritance. Which is maybe an odd thought to you, but Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse, four, verse 9 says, The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. In Psalm 33 verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In other words... We inherit him and he inherits us. We are in Jesus, God's treasured possession. Just as we look forward to receiving our inheritance, a treasured possession in Jesus. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. We belong to God and God belongs to us. This is the good news that we get through Jesus. And so um, my view here is that he is saying God's people are God's inheritance. That you are, as Jesus says elsewhere, you are a gift of the Father to his beloved Son, Jesus. You're a love gift of the Father to Jesus. Jesus says that in John 10 and other places. When he says of his sheep, I give them eternal life, they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
My father gave them to me, Jesus will say. And yet we know that Jesus went to the cross and he purchased his church upon the cross for God. Jesus went there for us. So we say, I don't understand. I don't understand why the father would want to give his son to get me. And I don't know why the son would want to get me for the father, but that's grace. And that's how God's love works. And why does that matter? If you thought he's just going on and on about this, why does it matter? Well, let me just say case in point, if you've been paying attention to the news of late, there's been a recent media firestorm about what is clearly an overhyped bit of writing, supposedly suggesting that Jesus had a human wife. Don't let the media's sensationalism distract you or disturb you about your confidence in God's word. And some of you are saying, I didn't know about that at all. You don't read the same websites I do. But look, the, it, it happened, it was announced at a big conference of Bible students of some kind, scholars. It's a bare snip of a sentence regarded by most experts, at least in their early look at it, as a total fake. But besides that, though many doubt it's this old, they're dating it, so they say, to the 4th century, which is 400 years past the time of Jesus, could have been written by anyone Anyone at that time could have written anything they wanted to about Jesus. Here's what I would say to you with regard to that. We have something better than some little snip of a sentence that may be a fake from the 4th century. The, the only gospels that actually date to, the, to the, the first century are the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by witnesses and eyewitnesses of the accounts with the stamp of approval of God's hand-picked apostles. And they all agree, as the rest of the entire Bible agrees, Jesus never loved a woman upon this earth as a wife. Because he did something better than that. He loved an entire people for himself and determined to make them his bride. The church is the bride of Jesus, given by the Father to his Son, purchased by the Son that he might cleanse her, forgive her, and present her faultless before the Father's face in glory. Oh, there's nothing better than that, friends. There's there's no way, in fact, to get anything good from God. Apart from Christ, it's offered to us in Christ. There's nothing outside of Christ. And Jesus is going to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. Jesus is where God and man meet. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. And in union with Jesus, you are a co-heir of all things. In union with Jesus, you are united to the beloved son of the father. And you are God's possession And you are God's own inheritance, even as you await the enjoyment of that. That's the grammar of inheritance here. But I want you to see how gracious it is. 
the grace of inheritance, why we have it, who receives it, and how we get it. Why do we have it? Why do we receive this inheritance? Go back to your Bible, verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's energy at work according to God's own plan devised not by the counsel of others, but after his own counsel and plan, he brought it about. He makes it happen. We don't get this blessing by chance. We don't get it by fate. You don't just stumble upon it accidentally. You don't earn it by merit. You don't get it by working for it. God worked for it and brought it about. That's grace. He's totally sovereign in his grace. A guy named Sinclair Ferguson, wonderful pastor, Columbia, South Carolina, seminary professor, says this, this is strong medicine for us to swallow. Some Christians find the first taste of it seems bitter. For swallowing it means swallowing the pride that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But once pride is dissolved by the absolute lordship and sovereignty of one who can be trusted absolutely, says Ferguson, the effects are wonderfully therapeutic. We begin to recover from the sin sickness that gripped Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And at last, we allow God to be God to us. Oh, friends, it's grace that God did all the good. God planned it and God worked it and God made it happen for you. And who receives it? This is grace. Who gets it? Who acquires this inheritance? Who becomes part of God's inheritance? Jew and Gentile together. And he makes that explicit. Verse 11, he speaks, um, or verse 12, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, but then notice in verse 13, he says, in him you also. So he speaks of we And then he speaks of you also. What's he doing there? He's reminding you that he, Paul, a Jew, who had all the promises of the Messiah and rejected the Messiah when he actually came, yet was overwhelmed by the grace of the Messiah. And the Messiah loved him and rescued him and made him his own. And then he speaks of you, the people he's writing to, you also. And so he's speaking here of Jew and Gentile, together becoming one in Christ. And only grace could make two hostile people like Jew and Gentile into one people. Look, like in our day, there's a lot of hostility between peoples. In Paul's day, the world was sharply divided between Jew and Gentile, between rich and poor, between master and slave, between the the responsibilities and privileges of men versus women, between old and young. There was a lot of hostility in his day. Just like there's a lot of hostility in our day and a lot of hostility a lot of people are trying to cultivate between, oh, I don't know, blue staters and red staters, between tax payers, they say, and tax claimers, between givers and takers, between pro-life and pro-choice, between majority and minority, between the one percenters and the 99 percenters, or between the 47 percenters and the 53 percenters, or, oh, I picked all these political terms, right? Sorry, there's, 
There's political gain to be had, people believe, so it's thought. Through class warfare and race baiting and envy between peoples and hostility between people. Well, all the more in the ancient world, there was hostility between Jew and Gentile. That didn't just come around in, in the 1900s in Europe with the Holocaust. But in Christianity and in the church, out of many, God makes one. One people. We're all one in Christ. We're all reunited in Christ. Whether you're black or white, rich or poor, male or female, Asian or American, Jew or Gentile, young or old, private schooled, public schooled or homeschooled, whatever you are, you are all one in Jesus. For any and all who believe in Jesus, there are no second class Christians in the church. And the Father says to Jesus, my son, There's a thief on a cross, and I want him too. And there's a prostitute who's going to anoint you with oil. You go for her too. And there's a murderer named Saul who's going to try to kill my people. I want him too. And there are liars, and there are cheats, and I want them just as there are beggars and lepers and outcasts, and I want them too. I choose them as my inheritance. Go get them, says the father to his son. That's grace. And then there's grace highlighted in how we receive it. How did we receive this? He says, verse 3, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. You believed. Paul, who had just said, you got this by the sovereign will, plan, and work of God, now says you received it through faith in Jesus. And he says them in one great breath. He holds them together in in such a way that they do not contradict. And though our small minds can't get totally wrapped around how all this can be, we know that both are true. You get it by the will of God. And yet you need to believe in Jesus and you get it through believing in Jesus. And that's grace. Just hearing the good news, he says, and believing it. That God became man to bring lost mankind back to God. That Jesus came to earth and he was born for you and he lived for you. He obeyed God for you. He suffered for you upon the cross. He died, was buried, and he rose again for you on your behalf to make you right with God, to give you access to the Father, just believing in Him, and it is all yours. That's how gracious this is, friends. As Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess, dear children, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart you believe in are justified, With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, he will not put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Ask him, call on him, and he will not turn you away. 
That is his promise. Look how gracious that is, friends. This is the grace of inheritance. But look at the guarantee of inheritance here. In verses 13 and 14, God doesn't want to leave us in doubt. He doesn't want us to live insecure. He wants to assure us that we will be part of this, all who believe. When he says, I've given you the Spirit. I've given you the promised Spirit to seal you and to guarantee it to you. What does it mean that we are sealed, as he says, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? That's the language used in, um, in Matthew 27 where Jesus is placed into the tomb and the tomb then is secured by sealing it. And then guards are placed around it. It's the language of Revelation 20 verse 3 where God throws Satan into a pit and seals it over him so he can't escape. The language of sealing, one meaning of it, which I take to be the meaning here is this, that God locks something in. He closes it in. He secures it so it can't be tampered with on his own authority. And when God secures you, you are really secure. Since you're secured with His seal, the Holy Spirit, even with Himself, He's claiming you as His own and He's securing you for Himself. And that is pushed further. Your security is pushed further by the idea that the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing, guaranteeing to you your future redemption. What is that language there? A deposit or a pledge? It's the language of earnest money. Some of you in real estate or banking, the commercial industry know all about earnest money. We're trying to sell our house. Somebody's going to come along one of these days and they're going to say, we want your house. And I'm going to look at them and say, great. How serious are you? And they're going to say, we're this serious. And they're going to cut me a check for 500 or $1,000 called earnest money. And, and that check's going to mean this. I'm so serious, if, if I back out on this, you keep that money. This is a first deposit. This is a first installment of the hundred and something thousand dollars I'm bringing with me to the bank in a few weeks when we meet together and sign the legal documents. I'm going to pay you in full, and I'm placing in your account, in your hands, the earnest money guaranteeing the full amount. Now, obviously, in our world. People sometimes fall back on their contracts and they they don't do what they've promised and they lose out on their money. But do you think for a moment that God would make his earnest to you the Holy Spirit and that he would ever walk away from his spirit and leave behind the spirit of God in you when what he has promised you is that the spirit is a down payment on the fullness of your joy? In his presence with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you think God would ever back away from his promise? Do you think that God is a liar? Do you think that God would, would, would divide himself from himself, so to speak? No way would he ever do that. The Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing your everlasting joy in this inheritance, friends. God doesn't play games with his people. Christians don't need to walk around pulling daisy flowers off the daisy saying, he loves me, 
He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. What's it going to be today? God isn't double-minded about us. He doesn't disinherit any of his children. He doesn't unseal you. He doesn't unadopt you. Jesus has paid it all to guarantee it, and the Spirit has been given to make it certain. And so finally we see this in the last place, the goal of this inheritance. What is the goal? Why did God do this, and what is it aiming at? What is he driving at? You see it at verse 12. You see it at the end of verse 14, and we actually saw it earlier at verse 6. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of His glory. Worship is the goal here, friends. It's the ultimate goal, even beyond our well-being, though it secures that. Even beyond our eternal happiness, though it secures that. All of that is to the praise of His glory. So we praise Him with our lips. But some of you are troubled by this. I've been troubled by this a long time in my life. Why does God want all the glory? And isn't that unseemly? Isn't it, isn't it like, and it's not, but isn't it like, you know, a college football player spiking the football, turning to the camera and gloating, look what I did? And don't we find that sometimes is, is an unseemly expression? We seek glory for ourselves in lots of things, so we suspect others when they seek glory or display glory of themselves. We just assume people have bad motives and wrong reasons for doing it. All of that, friends, is ultimately because you and I are sinners. But do not project that attitude on God. Don't think of God like that at all. God seeks His own glory for all the right reasons from a pure heart. Because he's the only one who deserves this glory. And to give it to any other would be to deny himself and to do wrong. The one way he's glorified, friends, is by our praise and with our lips. He gets all the credit, we say. He did it, and that glorifies him. And the other way we do it is with our lives. You sometimes hear that a person is so heavenly minded... They are no earthly good, but Paul here teaches just the opposite. To be heavenly minded is to be best equipped for earthly good. That's the logic of the order of this book. Stand amazed, chapter 1 to 3, at God's grace in Jesus and what he's promised you in the future. And what should you do with it? Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Well, put it to work in serving one another. In love. C.S. Lewis wrote this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And Paul says to you, oh, would you be a God-intoxicated person like me and would you delight in the inheritance he has promised and guaranteed to you in Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you.
We thank You. Lord, we're so weak, cold, and fickle. We're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, all apart from You. Would You clothe us? Would You awaken us? Would You revive us and refresh us? And would You take glory to Yourself? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.